Well, good morning, church family. If you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews. And uh, we are working our way uh, through this great book this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, as you're finding your place there, uh, got any, uh, anybody, anybody in this room remotely excited about today's Super Bowl at all? Uh, like, I'm kind of like, just whatever, um, and uh, don't care about the Eagles, especially being a Cowboys fan. Uh, certainly don't care about the Chiefs either. Uh, but uh, here we go, Super Bowl Sunday uh, in all its glory, even though we're going to watch, and uh, my wife and I will watch just for the commercials primarily. And so uh, that way we can give you all a good assessment uh, coming in next week, which one won. All right, I want to I start off, uh, I just want to jump in, beginning in verse 1. I want to read verses 1, 2, and 3 of Hebrews 4. Uh, let's just read it and then we'll get after it. Here it goes. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but to the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. Pray with me. Father, uh, we pray that you'd help us understand your word more clearly today. We pray that we would get a picture of Jesus uh, in this moment, and we ask these things in his name and God's people said, amen. Probably one of the most obscure and uh, random and even more difficult text in all of the book of Hebrews we find ourselves dealing with today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, over the previous weeks, we have seen the writer sort of build this argument in contention, and he's talking to the people of God about not falling away from the living God. And he's warning them that if you want to enter into the place of rest, if you want to enter into the land of, of Cana, the promised land, and, and all of these wonderful things that he alludes to in the Old Testament, then he says, as a believer, you've got to walk in obedience. You've got to walk in a, in a rhythm and in a pattern of obedience in your life. You've got to follow him faithfully and to do all of those things. And so chapter four is a continuation um, of this idea of walking and obeying and doing what God says because he simply just said it. Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to notice in the very beginning. When he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... So there's an assumption there in that moment that as the writer of Hebrews is writing to the local church, and as the Spirit of God is speaking to his word to his people today, he's saying this, some of you are doing precisely what God wants and asks of you. You're walking in faithfulness. You're seeking to be obedient. You're yearning to, to understand the, the person of, of Jesus, the, the Godhead, and, and what that means and how this applies to your life. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear what? Well, the, question, the answer to that question, he says, let us fear any of you should seem to have failed to reach him. So there's this notion and inclination that exists here that we serve a righteous and a holy, loving God who has dealt with his wrath on the cross through his son, that he is holy and separate than you and I. And yet at the same time, we've been bought and saved and redeemed. God pursued us. He opened our eyes to him. He drew us to himself. He revealed our sin before him, and he makes us family when we call upon his name. Yet, even in the midst of that, being eternally secured by way of salvation because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and it is sufficient, he says, yet you should fear you're not the one that drifts away. 
that there should be this tension that exists within all of our hearts, that each and every day my inclination is that apart from Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I will always drift not towards godliness, but I will always drift naturally towards my own sin. I'll drift towards the things of the world. I'll drift towards my own selfish desires. I will always drift naturally in that way. And so the counter to that is that if I'm going to become like Christ, I must be intentional to him, lest any of us fall away. Fear that notion and to fear that idea. Verse two says, for the good news came to us just as to them. In other words, he says, anyone here today who's called upon the name of the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to save you from your sins, to save you to something, a kingdom much greater than this world. He says, this is the good news that, is, that has come to us. It has therefore benefited us as a Christian. And so what I want you to see just in these first three verses, the danger in the text that he's speaking about is not about falling away, but it has more to do with not entering into his rest. The danger in the text the notion here is not that you will fall away from him, but the warning is, the danger is, is not the falling away, but rather that you would not be the recipient of his blessings in his hand, and you would not enter into his rest because of disobedience. Think about that. Oftentimes our notion in our conversations around Hebrews 4 and these other passages that we're gonna read that talk about drifting away and, and falling away, the, the danger is not so much, and he's not referring to the fact that you would lose your salvation under any circumstance, but rather you just simply wouldn't enter into his rest that he provides. The second thing that it teaches us just in these first three verses is this idea of rest is a real thing that God calls and wants and desires for his people to emulate. A pause, a ceasing from, from striving. In other words, to put it this way, maturity in Jesus is not about laboring for him, but about resting beside him. Somewhere along the way, we got this notion that, that in order for me to, to be a good, faithful Christian, that I have to always be doing something for Christ and, and walking with him, yes, always, but, but somewhere along the way, the church got confused, and what we began to do was we created programs, and we created activities, and, and listen, those programs weren't bad, and those activities were not wrong, but, but we began to pile up on people task after task after task, and then the world began to compete with that, or rather, we began to compete with the world. And then all of a sudden, families find themselves in this situation. College students find themselves in this situation where they're constantly going. On Monday night, there, there's a ball game to go to or a, or a Greek life event to, to be a part of. Tuesday, maybe the same. Wednesday, we've got the activities at the church. Thursday, there's something else. And Friday and Saturday, and then finally Sunday. And there's sometimes in our life where we, we find ourselves being pulled in all kinds of different directions. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's family related, sometimes it's work related. We, we have been caught up into this trap of running this race and trying to outpace everything. And then here's the kicker, when we finally don't have to do those things anymore and we get a chance to rest, where we run to in the middle of that rest is we begin to confuse rest with leisure. 
Rest and leisure are two very different things according to the word, and, and I can leisurely pass my time at home as I rest on a Sabbath by scrolling through social media, which is not rest, it is just leisure. And he goes on and he, and he makes this idea and this notion that this good news has come, therefore entering his rest, it still stands. Maturity in Christ is not so much about laboring for him, but resting beside him. The most mature in Jesus are not always those that work the hardest, but those who rest the most beside him. I have, I have met in my lifetime some very uh, uh, task-oriented, task-driven, church-driven, busy in ministry, doing things all the time, serving the church, and yet sometimes they are the most anxious and hurried people, and they do the task for the name of Jesus, all the while never entering actually into the rest that he provides. Working in, in union, as theologians call it, with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it can look like this. I can be the janitor that cleans the restrooms after church in the, in the foyer of, of this building, and I can do it as I commune and talk with the Lord, and I can be in a, in a place of rest. I can come to this pulpit and, and not do it prayed up and full of the spirit and, and not deliver a sermon in a posture and in a place of rest, focusing on the person and the work of Jesus, being filled with him, the most mature in Jesus, are not so much the hard workers at the task, but those who work diligently with being in relationship and in union with him constantly and being full of his spirit. He goes on in verse three, he says, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter into my rest. God designed the Lord's day, the Sabbath day for a reason. He understood that you and I are hardwired oftentimes towards busyness and tasks and doing one thing after another. And so he brings about the Sabbath for man so that we would rest. There are signs and times in the, in the early church, Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16, where, where the New Testament, New Testament church, it, it would gather at times on Sundays to, to worship. And, and whether you hold to the idea that a Sabbath is on a Saturday or a Sunday, I think that's really irrelevant. But the point is that, that God is calling us to cease from our labor, to cease from our toil, to stop, just as he did after the six days of work. He says, rest. He says, stop. He says, quit, quit striving. Turn the phones off. Be with your family. Focus on him. Look to his word to rest. And the early church would, would gather oftentimes on Sundays. There are other moments where, where we see them gather on, on Saturdays as well. And so either one of those can be appropriate. The point is that, that at least one day out of the week, you have time where you, where you rest. We really didn't get to begin to see this, this notion of Christians ceasing from, from business activities until uh, Constantine began to issue an edict as he ruled over the, the known world at the time. And he passes this edict that says, listen, there will be no businesses open or run on Sundays for the Christians. You will cease from your strivings. You will rest. Verse 8. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today saying, through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, God creates the world in six days, and he rests on the Sabbath. He rests on what we refer to as as the Lord's Day. Historically, Christians sort of shied away from from calling Sunday the Lord's Day because that word is is derived from a pagan cult that literally would would worship the sun. And so they would say, we we worship on, on the Sabbath, we worship on the Lord's Day. And so the reason why we do these, I wanna give you just a few reasons why we worship, why we gather, why we come that I think are helpful for us this morning, number one is this, we should rest to remind us that God is the point of our lives. The reason why we rest, the reason why we we honor the Lord's day and we come to church and we worship and we sing the songs that we sing and we we pray the prayers that we pray and we we yield our our hearts and and our minds and our emotions and and we put them under the authority of this, we yield this, the reason is, is to remind us that God is the point of our life. That he did not create us to go about doing a bunch of tasks. He didn't create us to, to our purpose is not designed in, in what we do or, or even how we do it. We were created first and foremost for the priority of loving God and being with him and enjoying him forever. And our motivation is different than, than that of the world. Just a few days ago, I talked to one of my, my best friends who uh, he, he is in the banking world. And he was pulled aside one day uh, by his boss fairly recently, and he was, he was asking my friend if he'd be willing to move. There were a couple of, of opportunities that were opening up uh, in the life of this bank, and, and it was a, a, a time for promotion, and he would have more responsibility. It'd be a great resume builder, all of these things. And, and my friend said, listen, um, I'm not really interested in that. He goes, well, you don't wanna make more money. He goes, well, of course I wouldn't decline making more money, but that's not the thing that motivates me. He says, well, what in the world uh, would, would motivate you then if money wasn't the primary thing. And he said, well, I'm not, I'm not called to go to those places, Albuquerque and, and God forbid Houston, Texas, uh, or even Austin, Texas. He said, I'm, I'm not interested in that. And his boss, who, who kind of understands the, the church world and kind of what we believe, and, and he says, I, I just think you're getting bad advice and, and bad counsel that you, that you wouldn't take this opportunity. And you don't know what his response was. He says, well, he said, the truth is, like, I'm not called to do those, but, but I'm at a loving church in a small group that I, that I deeply love and I deeply care for. I'm involved in, in my community. They, they love the word and, and, and I love what, what God is doing in the life of our church. And he said, if that means me staying at my church and being in this community and reaching the neighborhood that I'm in, if that means that I don't make as much money in my life because I don't wanna go somewhere else, and so be it. And he said very calmly and pastorally, he says, I, I, I'm just not motivated by that. Now, is it wrong to be motivated by those things? No, it's not. 
Is it wrong to, to take the promotion or not take the promotion to each his own? That's your own decision that you have to make from time to time. But the point was that my friend was making to me in that moment is he understood that the point of his life was not this corporate mobility to work his way up and to make as much money as he possibly could, though there is nothing inherently wrong with that idea. But rather for him, the motivation in his heart and his life had nothing to do with financial gain or means, but it had everything to do with the community that he found himself in and wanted to serve. That he was that vested in it and that, that committed to it. You see, the idea that God is the point of our lives, it carries with it this idea that we weren't created for our ability to produce things, rather we were created for our ability to rest in his presence, to be with him. We weren't created in this life in order and because of our ability to produce things. There is nothing that you and I can offer that God needs. There is nothing that I can create and make that, that he needs. He is not desperate for me to stand in this pulpit and to preach his word. He is not uh, in a spirit of desperation or anxiety about the way the world turns. He does not need me to do one thing for his kingdom. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that he, he invites me in to be a part of his work. And he says, Drew, this isn't, this isn't your work. I've placed you here and, and your vocation is you get to be a, a pastor and an elder at Travis, but your vocation may be that you're a CEO of a company. Your vocation that God's called you to is maybe you're an attorney, uh, maybe you're a doctor, a physician, maybe you're a banker. That's the thing that he has equipped you to do, but in so doing that, whatever it is that he has equipped you career-wise, the main thing in that career is not that you would go out and make a bazillion, bajillion dollars. The main thing and the reason why he has you where he has you is so that you would walk faithfully with him, be faithful in his presence, and that you would rest alongside him. On the Sabbath, as he calls the church to enjoy these things, to enjoy God, to enjoy his gifts, I've said this to you before and I'll say it again, but the Sabbath is a day to be rather than to do. The Sabbath is just simply a day to be rather than to do. It's not about the task. God says you got the task and the work responsibilities and the commitments throughout all the rest of the week. But on this day, just as he rested, he says don't do, just be. Don't do, just be. We're reminded that God is the point of our lives, but secondly, we should rest and enter into this Sabbath to remind us that God is the provider for our lives. He is the one that, that brings provision. First and foremost, as he alludes back to Psalm 95, which we talked about last week, was a reference to Numbers 14, and, and he's reminding the people of God about the deliverance by the hand of God out from the heavy hand of Pharaoh and into the loving gracious, compassionate arms of the Father, and he's saying, I'm the one that provides for you, I'm the one that delivered you, I'm the one that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I'm the one that will make provision for you. This past week, as I thought about this notion, this idea of God being provider, and one of the reasons why we rest is to remind us that he does provide. And one of the scary things about being a preacher is that if you talk about and you know you're gonna tell your people and look them dead in the eye and say, you need to trust that God is your provision, that God will provide, the danger in that is that God will then put you to the test. 
And we had several uh, things that happened in the life of our, of our family this past week. One, uh, my truck was assaulted uh, in, a, in a very awful way. But two, in the midst of that and dealing with all that, we were getting our dishwasher repaired. It was broken. And so the dishwasher man comes over on Tuesday or Wednesday and I meet him at the house. And, uh, and by this time, uh, I knew everything there was to know about Whirlpool dishwashers. I had scoured the internet. I'd watched every YouTube video, tipped it over, was like, I'm pretty sure there's a little gasket underneath here and this is where it's leaking and this is why it's not working properly. So the dishwasher repairman comes over and I'm like, look, man, I've Googled this. I'm pretty sure the answer is just right here, okay? Like, I'm almost positive. You turn it on, the water's gonna leak right there. It's right where this guy on YouTube says it's gonna be. He goes, okay, well, let me do my checks. So he goes through, does his checks, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm this guy, right? I'm, I, I could tell I was making him nervous and kind of annoying, so I'm just looking over his shoulder. And it's not so much to watch his work. I'm just curious, like, was I right? It's kind of really what I wanna know, right? I'm not trying to, like, put pressure on the guy. So finally, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna give the guy some space and walk around and make some phone calls come back and he says, sir, I found the problem. I said, really? I said, well, what was the problem? He said, uh, well, your, your heating element inside your dishwasher was broke. And I was like, well, what do you mean? What's that look like? And he's like, he's like, it's this thing. And he holds up this little uh, semi-circle thing and it's got one uh, bolt on one end that's black and this washer on the other end, there's just a clean cut. Like almost as if you had took a pair of snips and taken a pair of snips and just, and just cut it in half. And, and he said, your, your heating element in your dishwasher was broken. And I said, well, what does that even mean? He said, well, that means the last couple times that you ran your dishwasher, you had sparks that were flying around inside the dishwasher. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I said, how does that even happen with water flying around in there, right? He goes, well, it heats it up and, and, and it caused sparks. And he goes, you would have run it again. He goes, it's possible you could have caught your whole house on fire. And my wife's response in the, in the midst of that was like, just thank goodness we, we called the repairman and didn't let me try to replace the one little gasket because the next time I would have run it, thinking I had solved the problem, I would have burned the house down. Listen, the Lord God, he, he provides. He provides in very simple ways. He provides oftentimes in very complex ways, but he always provides. And so the reason why we speak about this notion of rest and the reason why the Lord God says you will cease from your striving, you will enter into that rest is so that we will be reminded that he is the one that provides. Thirdly and finally, we should rest to remind us that God is the savior of our lives. There's another reference, one of the second references to the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, where the Lord God says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God brought you out from under there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. What he's doing in that moment, the reason why we honor the Sabbath is he's reminding them that he was the one that delivered them from Pharaoh. He is the one that delivers you from your sin. And you, my friend, have nothing to do with that. You have no, you have no responsibility in that. You have, no, you have no task in the midst of that. That he is the one that delivered you from your sin, that those that would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved, and it has nothing to do with what you did or no inherent worth within you except for the fact you were made in the image of God and God loves you. That's it. That's the only thing that we bring to the table. 
is that he loves us and we are made into his image. We've been made for him. He is the one that delivers us from our sin. He is the savior of our lives. Just as he delivered Israel, he delivers us, those that would, would trust him and those that would call upon his name. Verse nine, back in Hebrews. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. One of the questions that I wrestled with this week and looking at several other theologians and authors that have written on Sabbath and what that is, and, and one of the things that, that everyone would argue in the same way and in the same manner is this question of, well, how do I actually enter into that rest? I take a Sabbath day, I go to church, or maybe it's on a Saturday or a Sunday, whenever, whenever it is and wherever you are, how do I as a Christian enter into that rest on a daily basis? How do I walk in the land of Cana, in the promised land, Monday through Saturday and not just on a Sunday? There are a couple of things that I think are helpful to remind you of that we proclaim in our heart, we remind ourselves, if we say them and we believe these things about Christ, we are therefore then entering into his rest. Number one, Christ is my righteousness. That the ultimate way that Christ is our Sabbath is that he, he saved us. And just like with Israel, God accomplished that all, all by himself. He, he is my righteousness. He's the reason why I'm right with the Father. If I wanna get to the Father, I go through the Son. He is the one that has declared me righteous and declared me holy. He is the one that reconciled my sin so that I can stand before and walk with in fellowship with a holy and righteous God. It is because of Jesus and him alone. He is my righteousness. At the cross, Jesus yells out these words, he says, it is finished, did he not? He didn't say, uh, Haley or Donald, I, I've taken it this far, you take it the rest of the way. Matt, uh, I've brought you along this far, I've, I've got to the cross, now the rest of your salvation and your security, it's up to you, you have to labor, you have to do these things, you have to strive. No, when he gets up on the cross and he, he is put to death and he, he bears my shame and your shame, he says, it is finished, it is done. And three days later, he resurrects and he walks around like a ghost for 40 days, going through walls and windows and freaking everybody out, letting them see that the scars that are on his hands. And then after 40 days, he ascends into the heavens where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he reigns supremely and, and, and over all things sovereignly. Christ is our righteousness. Number two, Christ is my identity. In order for me to enter into his rest, I proclaim his righteousness in my life and I understand that he is my identity, meaning this, I'm no longer a stranger alienated to God. I'm not an orphan, I'm not abandoned, I'm, I'm a son, I'm a, I'm a daughter. I've been brought into his family because of Christ. I'm a child. I've been given gifts for his kingdom to use for his namesake. God has equipped me with, with whatever it is that I need to go about accomplishing his kingdom and his purposes, that my identity is wrapped up in Christ. Not what I do, not being a dad, not being a husband, but rather it is in him and him alone. And so he says, friend, rest. Understanding that in your identity, you've been, you've been given gifts to enjoy God and to, and to be with God. Many of you in this room, you may or may not be familiar with the movie, The Chariots of Fire. 
It's a movie that has a famous line in it about a 1924 Olympic runner named Eric Liddell. And he's famous for these words, and this is the quote that often gets portrayed. Uh, Liddell was asked about running and why he runs and, 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 and being an athlete and doing all this stuff. And he just simply says this, as a sprinter, he goes, I run to glorify God, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Like I feel the, the smile and the hand of God on me when I run. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. I glorify him when he runs. Well, one of the, the movies or the story's counterparts is a guy by the name of Harold Adams, Ab- excuse me, Abrahams. And for him, running was not about pleasing God, but rather when he was asked the question about why does he run and compete at such a high level, he made this statement and I think it's tragic. He said, I run those 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. That the reason why I run for those 10 seconds, and I'm a sprinter, is it justifies my existence and me being here, living on this earth. Now you contrast Harold's statement with with Eric's. My existence is is found, my purpose is found in, in what I do. And then Eric's statement was, my identity, my rest, who I am is not in what I do, but it's who I'm with and who I'm running for that I run to to please God, I run to glorify him and I feel his pleasure in my life and so I walk with him and and I run with him. Lastly, it is not just about identity but it is also about security. Christ is my security. If God had said to Israel back in the day, if I rescued you when you were helpless slaves, surely I will take care now that you are my sons, now that that you are a part of my family. And so what that means is in the context of rest, he says, take a day off and rest and think about that thing. Think about the fact that God has delivered you, the fact that God has given you provision, that he's provided, that he has always been faithful, that you testify to those things. He may not have always answered your prayer the way you wanted it answered, but eventually he delivered you. Eventually he he walked through the fire on your behalf and he saw you come out on the other side. But I wanna say this in closing, I wanna make sure that we don't miss this. In order for us to to find rest, to not miss this point about Christ being all of these things for us, to say that as succinctly as possible, I would say it this way, that rest in our individual lives comes not from a pause, but comes from a person. It's not a pause, but rather it's the person of Jesus. And so when when I pursue his rest, when I enter into the promised land, if you will, when I, when I have my Sabbath on the, on the Lord's day, it's not so much about a pause. It's not about a break and putting my feet up and, and relaxing. It's not about leisure, but rather the rest comes not from the pause, but from the person of Jesus. And so therefore, friend, if that is true, we draw near to him. Therefore, friend, if, the, if the, the things that I'm going through and the angst that exists within my life has nothing to do with really how busy I am, maybe that has something to do with it, but maybe a lot of times within my life, I can be busy or I can be not busy, but I know this, I'm miserable anytime in busy seasons and unbusy seasons if I'm not walking faithfully with Jesus. If I'm not resting in him, not abiding in him, not pursuing him. You see, what you give your attention to is ultimately what you'll become. What you focus your your attention on, where you put your heart, where you focus your eyes, those are the things that that you eventually become. And devotion to those things, it begins with attention. 
And what you're looking at all the time and what you're gazing for and what you're longing for, when it's, when it's not Christ, you become that thing and it releases endorphins and all kinds of things neurologically happen within your head and then you begin to obsess about it and you begin to become consumed about it and it can be for all the right reasons or all the wrong reasons, but, but friends, the admonition in the scripture is simply this, if it is true that what you give your attention to is what you will become, then friend, why would we not, if we desire to become like Christ, give him our attention and therefore enter into his rest and therefore walk with him and pray for him to him to be with him not just to do things for him I love it when people do things for me I love to do things for other people but sometimes in the midst of doing things for people and and having things done by people, you don't often just get to be with the person because you're doing the thing. And, and sometimes it works out where you can get to know the person by doing something. Sometimes it doesn't work out where you're so busy, you didn't really get a chance to, to talk and, and to be. And the purpose of the Sabbath is he's just saying, stop doing and be. Like be and rest in my presence with me in the word, not for a pause, but looking at a person. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us give our attention and our time towards you. Father, we ask that, um, we do ask that you'd help us slow down. But Father, for those that are here in this room where slowing down isn't an option quite yet in this season, I pray that in the busyness of whatever season they find themselves in, I pray that they would find time not to do, but just simply to be with you. So Father, I ask that you would cultivate our hearts towards the things of your kingdom and our heart would be your heart. That we would long for the things that you long for in our lives and in our community and our church. And Father, we would just simply rest. Friend, if you're here today and you've never entered into that rest, the only way that we do that in the beginning is we call upon his name. The Bible says that anyone who desires to be saved wants to be saved is as simple as saying, Lord, would you save me from my sins? And there's a lot of other steps that take place after that, but salvation is no more complicated than that. To believe, to call upon his name, Jesus, you are who you say you are. Would you save me now? And I wanna invite you this morning, if you've never done that before, that you would you'd call upon his name. And if you do that, at some point later today or at the end of the service or during the response time, you would come tell someone, your small group leader or one of our staff ministers or, or elders, we'd love to talk with you about what an ongoing relationship with Jesus is all about. But if you've called upon his name, great. Where's your attention been over the past few weeks? Would you put your eyes on him, for he is worthy of that. Would you stand with us as we sing in time of response?